wanted to start this evening by sharing a story. It was interesting that James had a sense of the prophetic um, this evening, and we haven't actually um, kind of had an opportunity at the end of worship for some time for people um, within the church to share prophetic words. So it was interesting that this evening he felt led, because um, I feel like it is something that the Lord wants to do in us this evening. I wanted to start this morning with a story about the prophetic, a story that kind of I heard the other day and was like, that is amazing. That is a story that I want to share um, some of you will know that we currently have a couple of community houses as part of this church. Um, we have people from this church intentionally living together um, in houses in Cardiff um, who are kind of doing community together, uh, reaching out to uh, the people around them and kind of observing rhythms of prayer and lots of other stuff. I hope that was accurate description of it. Um, and I wanted to share a story that's come from one of those this past year. Um, it's come from Naomi, who was uh, leading worship this morning, uh, this evening, and, uh, and Helen. And um, many of you will know them, and they started our first community house last year. And they've been on a journey of moving house. Um, these last few months have been on a journey of, of, of being, feeling led to move into a second community house and start a new community house. And here is their story. I'm going to use their words, um, not mine. It says this. In January, God started speaking about the next house, that it would come with significant change, and that it would be a family of four, two guys and two girls. As we prayed over, um, over it in the, next, in the coming months, we felt that we knew who one of the guys was, and he agreed, so that made three of us signed up to start this new community house. But we felt the Lord say that the second guy was someone we didn't know, and he wasn't in Cardiff. How do you find someone you don't know and isn't in Cardiff? As we continued to pray with our friends, we decided to ask the Lord to give us his name. And someone prophetically felt that his name would be Mike. So now we had a name, but in a way, an even harder task. We didn't tell many people about this name because we didn't want to force anything. So in time, we had moved out of Bangor Street, which is the first community house, and we were sofa hopping with various friends, looking at lots of potential houses for this next community house. And we saw lots of houses that could have been okay, but they were only big enough for, three of, for the three of us. And we knew that the Lord had spoken about there being four of us. It was really tiring. One weekend, a very, we were very emotional and exhausted, and we asked the Lord to confirm over the course of that weekend if it was to be four of us in that house. Perhaps we had heard wrong. That Sunday evening at church, um, our last, we had our last attempt to find Mike. We talked to every person we saw. What's your name? Where do you live? But we found no such Mike. The next day, however, Helen went into work at the gate. She works here. Um, and she met Matt my husband, by the way, um, who works here as well. And uh, Matt said to Helen, um, I met this guy at church last night who was moving to Cardiff in October because God told him to. He doesn't have a job or know anyone. I asked him if he might want to live in your community house and he said he was interested to find out more. He's called Michael. I'll give you his number. <laughs> and then the ladies write this. After some crazy realisation that God speaks in specifics and brings crazy things together when we step out and trust him, we gave Michael a call. We explained how the community house works and asked if he was up for it. We all fasted and prayed over the weekend and came to the conclusion that it was the right thing. He then came down to meet us all a few weekends after. Only then did we tell him the Lord had given us his name already. Isn't that an amazing story? And I wanted to share um, that story this evening just to, give us the faith, just to give us faith for the prophetic in this community and what the Lord would want to do in speaking to us as a community. Um, in that moment, God was speaking to Naomi and Helen about um, events that were going to happen in the future. 
giving them faith for what was going to happen in the future. And that was a story about the prophetic and how God uses it to speak to us about the future. And I wanted to start it, uh, with it this evening, because this evening we're carrying on looking at the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Some of you will know that is a, it is a prophetic book in the Old Testament. And, um, and then through the course of the book, Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel about their future and what is going to happen in the future. And some of it's hard reading, but at the same time, he is giving them hope for the future that is to come. He is writing, James kind of started the series last week, and he explained how Isaiah was writing 600 years before the birth of Jesus. 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Um, and at the point we're looking at today, uh, in Isaiah 42... The nation of Israel have been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Um, the, uh, their land has been taken from them. The temple in Jerusalem where they worshipped for hundreds and hundreds of years had been totally destroyed and ransacked. Um, for the people of Israel, this was like the, the exile, which is what you call it. The exile was a dark, dark point in their history. It was their darkest point as a people. And James last week, he spoke about how it is in that darkness that Isaiah spoke to people about the light that was coming, a Messiah that was going to um, put things right and alter the course of history. And Isaiah, he didn't know it, <laughs> um, but 600 years before Jesus, he was pointing towards the figure of Jesus. Now, I kind of want to say just to, to those that are thorough amongst you, we are not trying to do justice to the entire book of Isaiah in the next few weeks. Um, we're not kind of yeah, going to look at it chapter by chapter. But what, as a team, when we felt called to talk about Isaiah, the, the, our aim, our kind of mission for the next few weeks, if you like, is we wanted to look at some of the key passages that talk about, um, that prophetically talk about Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And we wanted to look at that. And in doing so, as a church, go on a journey in the next few weeks of drawing closer to Jesus and falling more in love with him. Um, the image I had as I was preparing this was of us, over the next few weeks as a church, drawing a picture of Jesus together through the book of Isaiah, and then looking at it and falling more in love with him. To look at the King of Glory and fall more in love with him. So that's the aim. Are you up for it? Yes, yes two of you are. Woohoo, great. And the rest of you, you can just see how you get on. Um, so last week, James looked at Isaiah 9. Um, and in Isaiah 9, there is a prophecy about the birth of Jesus, and then um, he is described as a coming king. So I just wanted to remind us of verse 7 in Isaiah 9 before we look at um, Isaiah 42. So this is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, and this is talking about Jesus. So he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So Isaiah is saying that this uh, coming Messiah was going to be a king, and that he was going to be a descendant of the great king David, that he was going to sit on David's throne. Um, he was going to be a descendant of David. Now, many of you, or some of you will know, that David was um, kind of Israel's favorite king. Um, he had reigned over Israel kind of hundreds of years before this point where Isaiah is writing. And um, for, the, uh, for the nation of Israel, it was like he represented the golden era of Israel. Under his rule, um, the nation prospered, it thrived, it grew. He was described as a man after God's own heart, and he led the people to worship the Lord. Um, and the Israelites look back at David's reign as a bit of like the golden era. You know how some people feel about like Churchill in this country? They look back at it, almost sometimes probably with rose-tinted glasses, but they looked back to that era, and especially in their current context of having been um, kind of wiped out by this Babylonian empire, of having lost their land, their free rule. Um, they would have been even brighter 
this golden era, looking back, looking at this golden era of King David. They would have been longing to see an era like this again in their, um, in their lifetime. And this is what Isaiah is promising in chapter 9. He is saying that a king would come and reign over Israel again, but that this king would be even bigger, even greater than David. That he was going to be a messianic king that would come and rescue them from, um, and, and deliver them. But unlike David, that this messianic king, his kingdom was going to be even bigger. It was, unlike David's kingdom, it was going to last um, from that time on and forever. And it was going to have a greater impact than even David had had. Now, if you're the people of Israel reading this or hearing this um, passage from Isaiah, you'd be thinking, great. <laughs> but you would be expecting um, probably a political king, a military king to come and lead. And you'd be expecting someone that could kind of win back the land get rid of the Babylonians and establish Israel as a nation once more. That would have been your expectation. But as we can see through the book of Isaiah and the reality of Jesus, that God had very different plans, a very different type of king in mind. In Isaiah 42, we get the first of four servant songs. Um, and um, yeah, there's four of them, four chapters, in which this king is described as a servant. So kind of the first hint that maybe this king wasn't going to be, was going to be very different to their expectations. Um, that he was going to bring about a very different kind of kingdom. One not built on political or military power, but on a very different kind of power. So let's have a look at it, shall we? So Isaiah 42, the servant of the Lord. And I'm just going to read down to verse 9. It should come up behind you if you want to follow it on the screen. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place. And new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. They're amazing words, aren't they? They're amazing. Um, so we have, um, from looking back in Isaiah 9 from last week, um, we, have this, we have kind of two ways of viewing this Messiah. In Isaiah 9, he's described as a king. And then here in Isaiah 42, as a servant. We're beginning to get this picture of this servant king that was going to come. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, actually, I've read the verses in, chapter, in Isaiah 42 a few times over the years, but I've never really kind of known what to make of them or kind of what to draw from them. I've really enjoyed the last few weeks kind of going through it bit by bit. Um, and I was, I was hoping to do a bit of that this evening, just go the first four verses particularly, just go through verse by verse and kind of draw out um, what we learn about this servant king from them. And I want to look at particularly what kind of kingdom was this king coming to bring and what is our role in helping continue to establish that kingdom on earth. So verse 1, let's start at verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, those verses might feel a bit familiar. Maybe you've read them elsewhere in Scripture. 
um, you might recognize that they are in some way quoted at Jesus' baptism. Um, they're referring, or at least Jesus' baptism is referring to these verses. Um, in Mark 1, 9 to 11, we find this. And bearing in mind that those verses in Isaiah 42 were written 600 years before the events of Jesus' baptism. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with, with you I am well pleased. In that moment, Jesus is being identified as the servant king that we read about in Isaiah 42. Um, the writer of Mark's Gospels of the Gospels generally is saying, this is the king that was promised. This is the king that was promised. And you can see the parallel. I will put my spirit on him. This is my chosen one in whom I delight. So Isaiah 42, 1, I will put my spirit on him. And in this moment, we see Jesus being filled with the spirit. Those beautiful words in Mark's Gospel that the heavens opened and the spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Um, and then it says, and he will bring justice to the nations, in Isaiah 42, and he will bring justice to the nations. So having been filled with the Spirit, having been given authority from this Father's voice in heaven in calling out, saying, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased, in who is much loved. So being filled with the Spirit and then given authority as God's Son, it is from that place that Jesus then starts his ministry, his ministry of bringing justice to the nations. And Jesus' servant king, he starts his ministry by doing what? He starts his ministry by declaring that the kingdom of God has come. He is a king with a kingdom to establish. And what did the king and his kingdom look like? You know, as we said, Jesus was not the political or military leader that was expected. Instead of establishing an empire, you know, a political kingdom or a military kingdom, um, Jesus' kingdom was one where the sick were healed, the dead were raised, Lives were restored and sins were forgiven. A kingdom not fueled by earthly power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this servant king looked very different to any king that had been before and has been since. Let's look at verse 2 in our passage. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. I never got that. Um, and I was, as I've done some research into it, I was really interested to find out that the verb here, the Hebrew verb um, to cry out refers to kind of drowning out another voice, you know, speaking over the top of someone else, which I'm terrible for doing, by the way. If you're one of, one of many in a family, lots of siblings, I think it's just inherent that you speak over people just to get your voice in. But that's what it's talking about here, drowning out another voice. And when it's talking about raising your voice in the streets, it's talking about in the public arena. So what's kind of being talked about here is um, the kind of human method of establishing your power in a pushy way. Um, the Message Bible translates um, this verse in the following way, in reference to Jesus. He won't, call, he won't call attention to what he does with loud speeches or gaudy parades. You know, in earthly kingdoms, kings and rulers have to establish their power by making themselves known, um, by making their voice heard, by political positioning, um, by drawing attention to themselves. The servant king did not need to do this. He does not need to use earthly power to achieve his kingdom. In fact, there's all, if you read the Gospels, there's altogether something under the radar about the kingdom of God, isn't there? Um, Jesus kind of healed people, especially early on in his ministry. He'd heal people and then say, don't tell anybody. And you're thinking, why? <laughs> tell everybody. Come on, let's hype this up. Let's get the kind of social media going here. Come on. Um, and you know what? These verses in Isaiah 42 are quoted by Matthew in his Gospel um, by saying, look, he, he, he wasn't drawing attention to himself. He was telling people to be quiet. 
Jesus heals people and tells them to keep quiet. He deliberately keeps things under the radar until the time was right. Jesus didn't need to draw attention to himself. Um, He didn't need to be given authority by others. He didn't need to use earthly power to his advantage. Instead, he is filled with the power of the Spirit and has been given the authority of heaven. And that looks very different to human power. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because of this truth, Jesus ushered in a kingdom that went way beyond any human kingdom, any, any, impact, any impact that an earthly kingdom could have had. And what's amazing, if you read through the Gospels, is then Jesus does, kind of brings about this kingdom. He is the king that ushers in a kingdom. And then he says to his disciples, I give you authority to go and do the same. He then passes on this king's authority to them to go and do the same. And we read about in uh, Luke's gospel, um, the 72 go out in Luke 10 or Luke 11. um, And they go out and they um, share their faith. And they come back with stories of how they have seen the kingdom advance. That this authority that Jesus has had has been given to them. And off they go and they get to do the stuff as well. And it's the same for us. Do you know that you have the king's authority to pray for the sick and to preach the good news? Just like Jesus' authority comes from being God's son, um, our authority comes from our identity as sons and daughters of the king. Our authority comes from our identity as sons and daughters of the king. And the picture that came to mind as I was writing this talk this week was of a permission slip. I'm a mum of small boys and I'm forever writing out permission slips to their schools and nurseries, allowing them to do stuff. Um, And I felt like God saying, you know, I've signed your permission slip for you. I've given you the authority to do things in my name. Are you using that permission slip? Or is it shoved down at the bottom of your school bag? How would your street, your workplace, your family look different this week if you exercise the authority God has given you to extend his kingdom in those places? You know, as a church, we want to be kingdom carriers. That's one of our values as a church. Um, We looked at one recently, Graceful Community. We've got five. Go on our website and see if you can find them. They are there. And we believe we carry the authority of the king with us wherever we go. And we want to see the kingdom of God come in this city and beyond. And we do that under the authority of the king. Jesus brought about the kingdom of God with the king's authority. He also acts with the servant's humility. The king's authority and then with the servant's humility. Now we're perhaps quite used to hearing the phrase servant king in reference to Jesus. Um, But it is an outrageous concept if you think about it. Um, that a king should serve those who really should be serving him. That a king would lay down his dignity and serve others. That he would wash the feet of a broken world. It's not what comes to mind when you think of a king. I, I heard this story on Have I Got News For You the other day, and I went and looked it up, this news article, um, something I read about the royal family, about the queen specifically, that shocked me. I'm going to read out the article I found online. Um, during the holidays... Christmas and the New Year at Sandringham and most of the summer holidays at Balmoral, the whole royal family would play football with the Queen acting as goalkeeper. (laughs) See? That's weird, isn't it? I was like, that cannot be right, but apparently it is. The exact timing of the five-foot, four-inch Queen's spell as a stopper is not revealed, but is likely to have been during the mid to late 1960s when Prince Charles was at Cambridge. It is also not clear when she retired from the pitch. (laughs) Probably a while ago, let's be honest. Uh, a Buckingham Palace spokesman said, that's not something we'd comment on, which made me laugh. It made me laugh. I can't really imagine the Queen being in goal, <laughs> um, even at a younger age. It feels too undignified, doesn't it, 
Imagine her in goal. <laughs> it challenged my perceptions of her. Do you know, it just feels too undignified to imagine her in that way. For the messianic king to be described as a servant was just too undignified. It would have shocked people. It's a challenging concept, and it totally challenged people's perceptions of God and his priorities. You know, it's all upside down and back to front, isn't it? It's all upside down and back to front. A king shouldn't serve those who should serve him. And yet there's something amazing in this kind of oxymoron. It sets the tone for the kind of kingdom that this king would then bring. Let's look at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, a bruised reed is like a broken um, stalk of grain, and a smoldering wick, you know, it's like a candle that's just about to go out. And both these images are powerful images in reference to the vulnerable, the broken, the downtrodden, the hopeless cases. They speak of people who are battle-weary, those battered and bruised by life. And unlike earthly kingdoms, which often trample on people like that, which often kind of become powerful by trampling on people, the most vulnerable in society. In the kingdom of God, they are lifted up. The humble are lifted up in the kingdom of God. Isaiah promises in this moment that the servant king will lift up those in need and care for them. And it says something about the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God turns everything on its head. In the kingdom of God, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The king will serve, the deaf will hear, the blind will see. The powerless will be lifted up. Everything gets turned around in the kingdom of God. If you're here this evening, if you're feeling battered and weary, bruised by life, know that in God's kingdom you will be lifted up. That this servant king, Jesus, cares for you deeply. He came as a servant to serve this world, sacrificing his own rights to the extent that he died for you on a cross. And as a church, we are called to serve the lost and broken around us, to bind up the hurting world that we see. We are in a unique position to do that. And as we do that, people will see something of the nature of the kingdom of God, the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, and the king above it all. The kingdom of God will not trample on the needy, but will lift them up. So Jesus came with the king's authority, with the servant's humility, to bring about heaven's reality. To bring about heaven's reality. As, we, as you read through those verses in Isaiah 42, one word kind of repeats time and time again, justice. The servant king's role is to bring about justice. Verse one, it said, he will bring justice to the nations. Verse three, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. And now as we come to verse four in our passage, we see it again. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. By islands, it means kind of the ends of the earth. So in his teaching, the ends of the earth will put their hope. Now, justice is often a, a word that is used in terms of punishment, isn't it? In terms of retribution. Um, that justice happens to right a wrong. Um, years ago, I was a student in Sheffield. And um, I, as, during my time there, my last year at university, I volunteered with a project, with a youth project that my church ran down in this really, really deprived, uh, difficult area of Sheffield. And I used to go down there with a team, and we used to work with some really tough kids. And it was here I got to know a teenager called Terry, um, and he would help us work with these young people on this estate, and he kind of was just drawn in to our team. And over time, um, he um, came to know Jesus. It was amazing. He came to know Jesus. And uh, I then graduated and moved home, and I remember kind of half through that summer after I'd graduated, getting a phone call from the lady that had led the project, 
with the awful, awful news that Terry had been murdered. He'd been brutally, brutally murdered. And it was such a shock. I still remember the phone call to these days. I'll never forget it. And two of his friends, a couple, a boy and a girl, had brutally murdered him. And I found myself a week later getting back on a train back up to Sheffield to go to Terry's funeral. And I'll never forget, it was a boiling, boiling hot day. And it was, it was kind of like the, the weather mirrored the tensions in that community. Um, there was this kind of heat and tension in, the in this community that was trying to come to terms with the level of violence that had happened to this poor boy. And the atmosphere inside this church was like electric. There was this talk of justice that needed to be done. And people didn't mean through the criminal justice system. The justice they were after was blood. They were after an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I, I'll never forget it. And I left feeling despair because I could just see that this kind of justice was never going to mend a world that was that broken that teenagers could do that to their friend. It just wasn't going to make a difference. And you know what? The justice being promised here in Isaiah is very, very different to that kind of justice. It's a much fuller version of the word. It comes from the Hebrew word mishpat, and it speaks of restoration, of things being made right. A heavenly reality where everything is made well, and there is no need for the kind of justice that was being desired in Sheffield that day. And in verse 4, we read that the promise Jesus makes is that he won't stop, he won't tire until he has made all things right. Jesus won't stop. The kingdom is advancing. He won't stop until he has made all things right. You know, leaving the funeral that day, I was aware more so than ever of the need for Jesus, that he is our only hope for this world. Make no mistake, he is the only hope. Jesus is the only hope for a world that is this broken. The passage declares in verse eight, you know, I am the Lord, that is my name. Don't worship anyone else but Jesus. He is the only hope. He is the only person that can bring that kind of restoration and justice to this world. Worshipping anything else is just a waste of time. Only God can achieve that kind of restoration that our hearts long to see. Verses 6 and 7 in Isaiah 42 talk about what justice looks like in action. And it's kind of kingdom language. It's the stuff that Jesus did when he brought around, when he ushered in the kingdom of God. Verse 7, you know, he opened eyes that are blind, freed captives from prison, and released from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Restoration, making all things right. Isaiah is promising that when this servant comes, he would open the eyes of the blind, he would free the captives, he would bring light to the darkness. And we see the figure of Jesus in the New Testament, and we know he did that both physically to people who were blind, he made them hear, that he made them see. But we also know he did it spiritually. He did it in so many different ways. Jesus did it all. He did it all. And this is our mission statement now. This is our mission statement. The impact Jesus had in his short time on earth was bigger than any earthly king that went before him or has come since. It goes to the ends of the earth, verse 4 says. It goes to the ends of the earth. And the promise in Isaiah that, that this wouldn't just be restoration, wouldn't just be justice for individuals, but that it would bring restoration to whole societies, that governments would be on his shoulders. It goes much bigger than just on an individual level. The king is in the restoration business. And we are called to join with him in advancing our kingdom. We are called to give our lives to this, to seeing his kingdom advance. John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Movement, says this, the call of the kingdom isn't just one part of our life, it's all of it. It's all of it. 
We are called to advance his kingdom. We get to do it under the king's authority. We're called to serve this broken world with the servant's humility. And we get to partner with him in seeing justice restored and the kingdom break in. Should we stand? I'd love to pray.